Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. Well, good morning, and welcome to our 9.15 or 9 a.m. service. My name is Will Krause. I am one of our non-staff elders here at Grace City Church. And I'm excited to continue in our series, teaching series that we've been in, Upside Down Leadership. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 6 and also get to Galatians 6, as the Herald suggests. And so um, we'll be there uh, in a little bit. I got a couple things I want to let you know about, though, before we do that. Um, the first is that Will Plunk is not with us this morning. He is over at Radiant Church in North Charleston teaching uh, with their congregation. And so um, we're excited for him to get to do that. Radiant Church is a partner church of ours. They do really good work uh, in this city and have been a mentor to us in many ways, sharing resources, um, wisdom. Uh, they've been in the multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-economic life a uh, lot longer than we have. And so uh, we're very encouraged by the work they're doing and excited to continue to share resources. Honestly, it just reminds us that we are... Um, Grace City Church isn't the only church here, right? Like, we have a lot of good churches doing good work uh, in our city, and so um, we want to work together as often as we can and uh, remind ourselves we're part of the same family. Amen? Amen. So he's there. He'll be back with us next week um, uh, to continue in Upside Down Leadership. I also want to just draw attention to the date. Today is 9-11. September 11th, 2001, 21 years ago. Nearly 3,000 people lost their lives in what is still um, uh, the worst terrorist attack by fatalities that mankind has seen. And that was a long time ago at this point. I remember I was in seventh grade when it happened. I remember the announcement going off in a building like this in school that a bomb had gone off in New York. That was what uh, they knew at that time. And um, we were escorted into a safe place, not knowing what was going to happen next. And of course, you know, you, you probably remember where you were, um, depending on your age. Um, and this is a day that I want to really just be intentional and I want to pray for um, three things. One, that we would grieve well today with those that grieve, that still grieve. You know, grief, um, there's often a quick uh, response in a community around people that are grieving, and then they're easily forgotten about. If you've ever experienced grief, you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes that's months, sometimes that's years, but people's lives were changed, people's families were changed, people's Christmas cards changed 21 years ago. And you may not know anybody, I didn't know anybody personally um, in New York or that was connected to these attacks, um, but, you, but I would imagine a, a, a room this big, a transient place like Charleston, you, you may know somebody. I would encourage you to um, to reach out to them today, to reach out to their family, to, to grieve well, to pray for them in that. It's also a day to be grateful and remind ourselves that um, there are men and women sacrificing their lives to keep us safe. There, this is a, Charleston is a strong military presence um, in our community, and there are men and women right now who are deployed out of our congregation overseas serving our country helping provide freedoms uh, that we enjoy and so easily take for granted. It's a day to be grateful for all the men and women who have sacrificed themselves but continue to do so, that we might actually have eyes to see them and we would, could encourage and wrap around them. And it's also a day um, that I think this is maybe most important, that we, we set our hope on God. We recognize that it's not a military force that's going to ultimately do us good. It's not a, a political party in power. It's God that he's going to right every injustice ever that there ever was one day. He's going to make all things right one day. Whether those are sins against our country, sins from our country, sins from each other, he's a just God, and we can rest assured in that. So let's pray about those things, and then we'll open our word. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you use things in life to teach us things about you. And God, a day like today, there's a lot of responses for us as a people. As we think about the loss, the families that were forever changed, that were hurting, that were grieving, I pray that as any names come to mind or any relationships that we might even be somewhat close to, that we would be ambassadors of your, your mercy, your love, your empathy to those people today. Lord, I thank you for those that are, that are paying sacrifices 
missing soccer practices, away from their spouses, taking their relationships long distance so that they can provide freedoms that we enjoy in this country. May we truly be grateful. May we express that gratitude to those that we have relationship with, those that we come in contact with as we think about ways that in many ways they represent your love, your sacrificial love for us, willing to lay their lives down for others. And God, would we always be reminded that our hope is only in you, nothing else. Where we place too much hope in a certain thing or a certain um, infrastructure, would you just dethrone that in our hearts? And would we elevate you to the proper place, knowing that you're above all authorities, you're above all kingdoms, you're above all plots to, to destroy and kill, you're above all corruption, one day everything will, will come back to you. One day every knee shall bow. Would that give us hope as a people? Would we truly hope in that? Thank you for your word. I pray that this word this morning would be straight from you to our hearts. Help me to stay out of the way. But Lord, would your spirit run wild in this room, convicting us as we think about work, as we think about your word, as we think about stewarding uh, authority, whether we're in it or we're under it. Guide us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are in a series called Upside Down Leadership right now. And uh, the tagline is the authority to be last. And so what it's really focusing on um, is uh, the, the way that the world talks about authority versus God's word. Normally, if you, if you come to our church, we're teaching just through books of the Bible, but a few times of the year, we like to pick a topic that we think would be good to equip our people around. And so for the first two weeks of this series, we laid a foundation uh, of just what does God say about authority and leadership and first and last, and Plunk did an excellent job in that. We talked about um, last week uh, how that applies to the home in different roles, whether husband or, or wife, and, and what does that look like in our homes. Next week, we're talking about church leadership. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and then this week, we're talking about work. We're talking about work. I have a quick uh, survey I'd like to, to get just to know my audience this morning. Raise your hand if you are working. Show of hands. Okay. Somewhat of a trick question. Most of you fought, caught on to that. Um, raise your hand if you get paid to work. Start with that. Raise your hand if you don't get paid to work. A couple of you. Okay. Lots of categories of work. That's the point. And what I want to do is as we get into talking about authority, positional authority within work, I want to give you a biblical framework for what is work. Where does it come from? What does it mean when we say that? Um, uh, what are the different types of work? And so we start with Genesis, Genesis 1. This is where uh, we see that God works. I'm going to go through these verses. Genesis 2 talks about uh, how he commissions us to work, and Genesis 3 talks about how sin messes up work. Right? So in Genesis 1, we see that the earth was formless, it was empty and dark, and the Spirit of God was hovering over a globe of water, essentially. There was nothing. And what does he do in verse 3? He said, let there be light. And as you know, he goes on creating things. What is he doing? He's working. How do we know he's working? Because it says on the seventh day he rested from his work. Now that's interesting because God doesn't need to rest. But the idea around rest there is that he was ceasing because the work was done. So God works. And we know that in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, um, there's this verse that says, you know, shrubs had not yet appeared, vegetation had not sprung up yet, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth. And notice this, there was no one to work the ground. There was no one to work the ground. And so uh, a couple verses later, he makes man. Uh, and he says that um, uh, man who is made in his image, so right, we have a God who works, and so it made in his image, uh, we work because he worked. But it also says that he puts man in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It's, it's really one of the reasons that he creates us to work. You see here God delegating. Now that's also interesting because did he need to delegate? Like did he need us to work? Did he need us to help those plants grow or take good care of them like Abel's landscaping does? He, he didn't ask me to do that. He's God. The answer is no. He didn't need our help. So what's he doing? Why is he creating us and, and, and commissioning us to go out and to, 
to work. You could easily say he's, he, he must be allowing us, it must be for our good. He's, he's, he's allowing us to participate in something. These are the earliest pages of scriptures, and, and it's essential to the idea of work. God is, he is allowing us to participate in something when we work. But we also know that work gets corrupted because Adam and Eve's sin, humanity now has a, a, a curse on them. We have a sin problem. Genesis 3 talks about this through several verses. It says in verse 17, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit, the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you will return. This thing that was given to us to work, God's intent was not for it to be cursed, but that is a consequence of sin, that the ground is cursed. Things don't go like we want them to when it comes to our work. And if all this is true about work, really there's really work is, is all of life in another sense, right? Like it's the job you get paid to do, absolutely, but it's also fixing a toilet in your house. I have three toilets in my house, all need to be fixed right now. I've been neglecting that work. It's also nursing a newborn. Work is also studying for an exam. Work is serving the poor. Work is fostering a child. Really, all of life, in a way, is work. I heard a definition from a church in Greenville one time that uh, says this. It's on the screen for you, too. Work is the intentional employment of my energy and my abilities to provide for my needs and those God has entrusted to me to promote the peace and prosperity of my community and to make this world better in anticipation of new heavens and new earth. Work is energy expended. There are lots of categories of work. You are all working. If one day at 65 you end your paid career, guess what? You're still working. You still have energy to employ. You still have abilities and gifts that God has given you. So work is so many things. And we could do a series just on work. But that's not what today's focus is. Today's focus is how do we exist in work under positional authority and in positional authority? What does the world say about authority when it comes to the workplace? And how do we live in that? What does God say about it? The reason we've called this series Upside Down is because we are saying the world says one thing and what Jesus says is something completely opposite. From our vantage point in the world, it's upside down. But it's really what we're trying to to orient our lives and live around. So we're going to be in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 is where we're starting. Galatians 6 is where we're finishing. Um, Ephesians 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Let's stop right there real quick. Is Grace City just intentionally picking texts each week that make us cringe? No. We're not trying to do that. We're not trying to do that. Do we, do we cringe over these titles for good reasons? We got baggage with these words, we got history with these words, even right here in this city. Does the Bible condone slavery? No. Has mankind weaponized verses like this against slaves? Yes. Is this verse breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? Yes. This is part of God's word. And while mankind has, has broken and misused God's word, it doesn't compromise the reliability, the authenticity, or the credibility, or the uh, authority of his word. That's, that's man's problem, not a problem with God's word. And this word slave, in the Greek, it's, it's doulos. Um, it's what is often used to describe our relationship to God, that we are slaves of Christ. It, it means servant, um, and so in this setting, bond servant is the most likely usage of what he says here when it translates it to slave. It is describing a, a working relationship. That is very clear. It is describing someone who works under an authority, 
And it is describing someone who is in authority. It's going to give instructions to both. And so it's incredibly applicable for us. And so for your sake and for mine, as you look at this, when you see slaves, uh, think um, uh, employee, think member, think student, think you could even think child. When you see um, masters, think uh, boss, think leader, think professor, think adult, Right? There are lots of positional authorities in work. Because remember, work is not just a thing you get paid for. There's work to be done in Kid City. Amen, Kid City people? You're working back there. And you've got a ministry team leader, right, that you work under. There's a staff person over them that, res- that works over them. So there's positional authority all around us. And I want to really encourage you to think that way as we unpack these principles and then apply them where the Holy Spirit convicts in your life. So what does it say? It says, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. The command right off the jump is to obey. To those that are under positional authority, where you have positional authority uh, in your life. So I'm a non-staff elder, which means I don't get paid by the church. I work in the church, but I don't get paid by the church. Um, I, I have a, what you might call a normal job uh, or what you might call um, a day job. My um, job, I work for a company called Booster. It was my first job out of college. I've been with them for 11 years. We do school fundraising, K through 12. So that's my background. That's my industry, you could say. For three years, um, I worked in the organization with no real positional authority. The low man on the totem pole, you could say. Just learning the ropes. We have nicknames. My nickname was Chili Willy. Forget that. I don't know why I said that. Um, you're not allowed to call me Chili Willy. And uh, we work with kids, so we had to have fun nicknames. And I was just Chili Willy running around in schools, learning the ropes, reporting to a manager, reporting to somebody. In the last eight years, through different roles, I've, I, have, I have been given um, positional authority in the organization. Now, I still, even today, I'm the general manager of our South Carolina team, but I report to somebody. I give an account for um, what happens in our state and on our teams. And uh, this idea for those under positional authority, the, the first instruction, it says obey. It says obey. What does obey mean? Obey means to, to hear, to listen. It ultimately means to, to submit, to, to yield your own agenda and, and surrender it, put it under someone else's. When I hear this word, I think of kids, right? It's like the thing you say to kids over and over and over again. It's like the theme of their life for eight to 16 years. And um, you're, you're, you're trying to get them to understand what obeying means. There's, there's instructions in the Bible for that for children. There's lots of forms of obeying. We can probably all agree, right? We keep kids as our illustration for this. There's like the huffing and puffing obeying, like go to your room. <sighs> And you just, you know, they walk, you can visualize it, right? Like a kid just doing what you said. Did they obey? They went to your room. They did what you said. They submitted their will. But, but externally, they weren't even trying to convince you that they liked what you said or agreed with it or were okay with it. But they did it. There's that kind of obeying. Um, there's also um, maybe like an external obedience where you're obeying and you're even somewhat pleasant to the authority that asks you to do that thing. Like, you go to your room, but then when the door shuts, how you really feel comes out. Like, the books start flying, the, the room gets to a mess, the, the, the voice elevates, and you're just trying not to hear it as the parent. <laughs> but that's an that's, that's external behavior where, you know, on the surface it looked right, internally it wasn't, it wasn't really there. Unfortunately for all of us, the kind of obeying that he's talking about here is neither one of those two. When we think about the workplace, think about that for a second. Like just doing what your boss says or what your positional authority has asked you to do is not enough for God. Just showing up on time. I mean, that's hard enough for most of us in Charleston. But just being there on time, you, you did the outward thing, but that's not, that's not good enough here. It's not what God is calling us to do. And it's because of what he says after obey, with respect, with fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would Christ. Now that fundamentally changes things. 
He goes on in verse 6 to say, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, as servants of Christ, do the will of God from your heart. This is an internal obedience. And that's really hard. That's very rare in working environments. Would you agree with me? It's very rare. Because that means what I do externally has to align with how I really feel on the inside, what my emotions are going on in here, what I really believe. And society teaches us to say the right thing, especially to our authority figures. Like, you know the right thing to say. But do you actually believe it? Is it coming from a sincere heart? And when he says, as if you were doing it for Christ, that brings in all of Christ's teachings on the subject. Meaning, if I look at someone lustfully, I've actually committed adultery. If I am angry with someone in my heart, I've actually committed murder. The standard that Christ sets is, is, is way beyond what this world says. But this is the kind of obedience he calls us to for those under positional authority. Here's what it practically means. It means you can't cheat your taxes, even if no one will know, or honestly, the IRS won't even care. Because you know here that it's not right. It means that you don't clean up the event frustrated because no one else is helping you, and you're not getting any kind of recognition for it. You clean up the event with a, with a, with a pure heart as if you were serving for the Lord. Here's a big one. You can't just say the right thing in front of your leader and then gossip behind their back. You can't just say the right thing in front of your leader and then gossip behind your back. Um, I am, my, my family grew up in Florida, so we were in the citrus industry, naturally. Florida loves their oranges. We were farmers, and so we grow oranges for a living. Many of you have heard many of the illustrations from me about this. This is my book-selling go-to. Uh, that's the equivalent of Plunk's illustrations. Here's something you might not know. The citrus industry is declining rapidly, like crazy fast. You want to hear some stats? 20 years ago, the state of Florida produced 750 million boxes of fruit. Now, on a good year, they're producing 35 million. 750 million, 35 million. Hurricanes, yes, that, that hurts really bad. That, that'll wipe out a grower fast. It not only knocks the fruit off the trees, it might take the trees out. When you plant a new tree, it takes three years to get a fruit or to, to actually get any money off that tree. And so many farmers, when the hurricane knocks their crop out or the tree itself or damages it, it's just hard to start over again. It's too expensive. It's too costly. But the number one reason is not hurricanes and storms. It's something called canker. Canker is a, uh, an airborne disease. It's literally like a cancer to orange trees or citrus trees. And when you find canker in a tree, you take out like 50 yards around it out. All the good trees around it are gone too because of how fast it spreads and how quickly it takes down a grove. By the way, we call orange, lots of orange trees are called a grove, not an orchard. You're welcome. Here's the point. Gossip poisons work culture. It poisons it. It spreads faster than anything, and it takes down organizations' health. It takes down a leader's ability to help even just do the normal things at this point. Gossip kills work environments. It's so easy and common, though, though, to just say the right thing in front of the leader, but behind their back turn everybody against them as soon as they walk away. To undermine the organization's health, health through deceit. And I think as Christians, we got to fight against that. You might say, well, I don't gossip. Culture is not just what you do, it's what you allow. Like, you got to fight in these workplaces that we're in to protect the unity of the, the, the team members, the coworkers that you're laboring with to not allow gossip. That might mean you need to tell your leaders some hard things because they're being bad leaders. But to, to, to leave them in a state of an illusion of reality is not okay because it's not obeying with a pure, it's not internal obedience with a sincere heart. We've got to fight against that habit. My boss is a jerk. 
you're probably right. There's a lot of bad bosses out there. There's a lot of unworthy leaders of your inward obedience. But remember, you're not actually doing it for them. The text is going to say that really explicitly at the end. And on top of that, isn't it interesting how God calls us to respect, serve, obey, and love others regardless of their worthiness of it? Like, does that not just like remind you of the gospel, your story with God, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you when you weren't worthy of it? That while you still sin today, he has forgiven you and he will continue to forgive you and he has clothed you in righteousness? It's the upside-down nature of the gospel that compels us to live upside-down lives in the workplace. The gospel's upside-down. The gospel doesn't really make sense in this world. But it's because of that that we actually can go live lives in the workplace that don't make sense to our coworkers. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Work hard. It's, notice it doesn't say it's, it's not wrong to obey them when they are watching you, to win their favor when they are watching you. There's nothing wrong with that. He says, don't let that be your only motivation, though. Instead, set the bar higher than that. Do it as if you were serving me. Verse 7 says it explicitly. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or they are free. Serve wholeheartedly is the instruction for us, for those that are under positional authority. Think about the things that you just naturally do wholeheartedly. I was thinking about a list, and it was pretty embarrassing. Charge my iPhone. That thing never dies. I am very aware of where my charger is, and I'm sad to say that. And many of you are with me. Don't lie. Like your phone, when's the last time your phone actually died? You could say you're wholeheartedly making sure that thing stays alive and stays charged. Think of how many adapters you have to make sure that the, your devices stay plugged in, your devices are powered up. Some of you, it's coffee. No one has to, no one has to give you a pep talk in the morning to go get your coffee ready. You're on it. You know, where, you know what you need. You know where it's at. You, sir, you, you work wholeheartedly to go get it. Um, my real guilty uh, pleasure is food, especially when I'm hungry. Like, I, n- no one is working more wholeheartedly to get food than me on a day that I'm hungry. Um, I had this really fun fight with my wife about this recently where we had a meal planned. We had some friends over. We were actually on a, like a vacation thing, and I was I, I got into risotto. I just got into it. Like it, I, I was on a risotto kick. I was like, risotto is the best thing I've ever had in my life. So good. And um, so I, we were having salmon, and I was like, we gotta have risotto. We we gotta have risotto. So she does the online shopping thing. The online shopper person who's delivering it to our remote location, no risotto. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, no risotto. How did they not have risotto at Publix? Like, they had to have had it there. So I do this, like, Hail Mary plan, call in my parents who are coming from out of town to just go stop by on the way and bring risotto. That's how bad I had to have it. That, that, that was how wholeheartedly I was throwing myself at this, this, this goal of making sure we had risotto at dinner. This is the kind of wholehearted service that we're called to in the workplace. To do whatever it is that you're doing wholeheartedly with everything you've got, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And the reason for that is, is really cool. But Colossians 3.23 reinforces the same thing. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. The scriptures are clear. We, we, we are employed by a different employer. We might, we might report in this life to somebody, to, to a leadership over us, but we work for a different master. He has his own agenda, and that's the one we subscribe to. And that is who we take cues from in terms of how we exist in the workplace. The reason we serve wholeheartedly, though, verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, this is exciting. It says that the Lord's going to reward each of us for whatever good we do, whatever meaning all like, this is just a simple point, but I want you to know, you know God sees everything? 
I think when we say that sometimes in church, we're like, ooh. But, like, he sees everything that's good that you do. There's no, not, there's no good thing that, that, that slips from his eye. Now, your earthly leader, they miss everything. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a boss. I'm, I'll admit, like, I, I can't see everything. I can't be at all places all the time. I miss a lot of the good things that my team members are doing uh, in our organization. God doesn't miss a single thing. God doesn't miss a single thing. He sees all. He sees all the external good you're doing, but he also sees all the internal good you're doing. He sees the reason why you've chosen it. And it says that he rewards us. It says he rewards us. This idea of him rewarding us, that should be exciting for us. Like, I'm not here to teach a sermon on exactly what heavenly rewards look like. Personally, I'm not really like a jewelry person. So, like, jewels in heaven, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what that means exactly. But here's what, I, here's what I do know. I know that if God is who he says he is, I'm going to want whatever reward he's talking about. <laughs> like, this life that he's talking about in the future, like, if he created me and he knows me and he's the kind of good God that I believe he is, this should, my, my ears should perk to this. Um, this idea of investing in heaven is, is, is all throughout the scriptures. We think about it often with our money. Today's application is to think about it with how we work, with the kind of way we go about carrying ourselves in work. If you were to zoom out, right, like to meet with, you have ever met with a financial advisor, one of the best things they're doing is they're just helping you zoom out. Like, hey, if you invest the little by little by little by little, at this point, look what it's going to be. And you're like, wow, that's really helpful. I didn't know. If I just do this little bit here and here and here, it'll pay off one day. And if you've done that faithfully and you're at that age, you know, like, it, it, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad we saved when we did. If, if somehow heaven could come down with just a, a heaven financial advisor and sit with us this morning, here's what they would say, probably. Hey, at best, you're going to live 85 years, maybe, maybe 90. Some of you, maybe you're trending to 90. Most of you, not. 85, let's just pick a number, right? That's what this life you can expect. Guess what the next life is going to look like. Now, we just say eternity all the time, but we don't really put a number on that because you can't. But let's just pick one, 85 trillion years. Okay, so you can make decisions based on investing in an 85-year life, or you can make decisions based on an 85 trillion year life. Which one do you think you should do? It's like, I mean, it's obvious, but how easy is it for us to put our head down and not think about the idea of I'm, I need, I'm, I'm in, I need to invest shrewdly in heaven. Like, it's just, it's a logical decision if you believe God is who he says he is. But yet many of us just really don't believe. We don't believe that one day there is going to be that kind of heaven, that there is going to be an eternity with him. That sounds odd to say in the South, but our actions say we don't really believe it. That we're not really living our lives for the next life. But instead, we're just thinking about what can we get here and now. The call is clear for those under positional authority. Serve wholeheartedly as if serving for the Lord. But he also speaks to those in authority. And like God speaks to leaders, they get off a little bit worse than those that they lead. He says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way. Meaning everything I just said to those that you lead, that applies to you too. In the same way. What way? With respect, with sincerity of heart, with um, uh, an, an inward integrity, not just an external what you say. The standard for leaders is no different. And it even says that at the end, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Meaning your positional authority here doesn't really, doesn't really get you anything in heaven. In fact, it kind of gets you, 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 you actually hold, um, you're more accountable. We'll talk about it more next week. But like God holds leaders to an even higher standard in many ways. He says in the same way, with wholehearted um, leadership, you're called to lead. You're called to um, be a boss. You're called to be a team leader. You're called to, to, to serve the people that you lead. He shows no favoritism. It says that because you serve the same master, that's the idea. Don't threaten them. Don't mistreat them. Don't exploit them. Don't um, view them as simply a means to an end. 
You both work for the same person. So what does that fundamentally make you if you're a leader? If you work for the same person, then in reality, you're just a mid-level manager. You're a, you're a steward of the role and responsibility you have. We've said that word a lot in the past couple of months at the church. You're a steward of the title you have. You're a steward of the resources you manage. You're a steward of the people that you lead. Because ultimately, it's God who's put you in charge. And he's the one that you give an account to, just like the one that you lead. So the question becomes for us this morning, what kind of steward do you want to be? What kind of steward do you want to be? There's a, there's a lot at stake, I'll say this, for leaders. Those that have some sort of positional authority, whether you're a, a teacher, whether you are an adult over children, whether you um, are a boss, whether you're a team leader, there's a lot at stake. Mark alluded to it earlier. You want to know the stat on how many hours in an average career an American will work? 90,000. 90,000 hours will be spent in a, in, a, in a working career. That represents a fourth of all time in your life. The only category that's higher than that is sleeping, if you sleep eight hours a day, and some of you don't do that. This is a big deal. This is a lot of opportunity to impact people. And if you compare, contrast that, again, it was like he read my notes this morning, but how many hours a week you spend in church, you know, at that, that same time frame, so 90,000 hours in a career, I'm giving you the advantage of you know, you're super involved in your community group, like it's not just corporate worship on Sunday, that, that comes in at about 9,000 hours. So who is influencing people more, actually? The church or organizations? Just based on time, you could say it's organizations. You could say it's leaders in those organizations that are making a greater impact on people in terms of what actually plays out in the world, in their lives. Do you think that the quality of someone's life that you lead might have something to do with the quality of their working life? Might have something to do with the way you send them home at the end of the day? That maybe their marriage might be tied to their self-esteem when they leave work? That their time with their kids is not impacted by the way you steward their time in your organization? That their identity might be shaped by what you say about them and how you say it to them? Just based on time, you'll make the largest impact in their life over anyone else. You'll see them more than your friends or than their friends do, than their spouse does, than their kids and their pastor. We talk about changing the world. My organization likes to say that phrase too. If Christians just leverage their work authority and influence in an upside down way, this world will start to look a lot different. This world will start to look a lot different. I want to share some examples that I've seen modeled for me and in other organizations of, of what upside-down leaders really look like. I've just got a couple of them for you. Upside-down leaders invest generously in personal lives. They invest generously in personal lives, like asking a team member, how are you doing, and actually giving them space and time to give an honest answer. Like not just as a cultural statement of like, how you doing, but actually giving them time to really give a real answer and listening and then remembering, showing up to big life events. Leaders in my life that have done that intentionally, it's made a huge impact on me. Whether that be weddings, deaths, events that I get excited about, seeing them in your corner, seeing them show up to big life events, caring about their emotional health. I saw an organization, um, they set aside funds uh, through a foundation where team members can contribute monthly to create basically a pool of money and it can be like you, you literally just pay $5 a month or you pay $2 a month or you pay $100 a month. It's up to the employee. And those funds are set aside just to help other team members that come into financial need. That was set up by the leadership team in that organization. That may be something that could be applicable to the organization that you lead or the leadership authority that you have. They invest generously in personal lives. They also celebrate the small contributions. This is an upside down characteristic of, of great leaders. The top performers on your team, they're going to get their recognition. I mean, everyone sees the graph, you know. We know. They're crushing it. And so often, 
we just focus as leaders on celebrating those who are the shiniest, those who are, are producing the most, um, even externally. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to celebrate top performers in your organization, but great leaders find the stories that get overlooked by the people in the organization that often are, are, are unseen. They celebrate the small contributions and, and, and they tie that back into the mission of, of what they're doing and why it matters. Upside down leaders make themselves approachable. It's natural to be intimidated to go to your boss. That's kind of a natural right side up thing in the world. Upside down leaders make themselves approachable. They ask for feedback from those that they lead. And they express gratitude when it's given. And then they write it down and they ask weeks or months later, hey, is this improving? Like if you're a leader, you gotta initiate that. Make yourself approachable by those that you lead. They don't just remember names, they remember stories. Stories that matter about people, where they're from, what they like to do. They bring those things up. Lastly, upside down leaders are willing to cheat their job. They're willing to cheat their organization. What I mean by that is they model health for their people in their own lives by prioritizing and encouraging things that are more important than the organization's success. And I keep that as a broad category because I think even in the nonprofit world, because they're doing good things, it can feel like there's just no limit to how much that this person should contribute and serve and, and work towards that goal because it's a good goal. A for-profit company, yes, the goal is to make a profit. The goal is to, to do good work and to grow the organization. But upside-down leaders model health when they prioritize things in their own life and encourage the people they follow that are just more important than the organization's success. Things like resting. Things like spending time with family. Things like ministry. Upside-down leaders are willing to cheat their organization for things that are much more important holistically. Leaders, there are just more significant and meaningful things in this life than the organization's mission statement, than a company's bottom line, than your quarterly commission check. So engage and invest in the lives of those you lead. It's so worth it. Last thing here from uh, examples I've seen, shameless plug, I think every organization should have a culture budget. If you're in charge of budgets, you should have a budget called culture that you put funds to to actually help create these conversations, create these relationships to invest in your team. You may not have the right to create a budget, so maybe recommend it to your boss. I think every organization should have a culture budget. I just think it's a, that's a willism, not a Bibleism. Just want you to know that. Um, let's go to Galatians. This is where we're gonna, we're gonna really anchor this idea of work and leadership authority. Galatians 6. Um, the first six verses lay out beautiful upside-down principles around work. The main idea in the first six verses is carrying each other's burdens, right? Instead of I'm, I'm, I'm jockeying with my fellow employees to try and just get higher and higher in the organization, no, instead, I'm gonna look to carry others' burdens. That's what I do as a Christian. That's what the family of God should be known for, but that's how we exist in the workplace as well. And then in verse seven, it says this, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Notice the work language, sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. It's cultivative garden language from the beginning. It's working language. You plant an orange tree, you're gonna grow oranges. If you refuse to water it, it's gonna die. If you make your life, your work about something, that's what you're going to likely reap. And God's making it plain. You sow to please your flesh, you're gonna reap destruction. You sow to please the spirit, you're gonna reap eternal life. Here's a couple of examples of how that plays out. Med students, you make your whole life about career advancement, you're probably gonna advance in your career. You make that the central thing that you're focused on, that's probably what will happen. Stay-at-home parents, you make your working career about survival, and you will survive, probably. Entrepreneurs, make your life about the next big idea, and it'll consume you. Leaders, make your life about organizational success in this world, and you might find that you're successful in this world. Employees, make your life about comfort, and a version of comfort you will find. 
But here's the, here's the important thing to consider. Are those things going to lead to my destruction or are they going to lead to life to the fullest? Because it's sometimes, again, when we zoom out, we realize that I might just get what I'm trying to get. And that may be the worst thing for me, actually. Like if I make my life about moving up into the right, we probably will move up into the right. That's not true for everybody, but you might actually, that might be the worst thing God can do is let you do that. We, we think we know what we want in life, what's really good for us, yet oftentimes we realize we're just sowing into this world. And Paul's clear. You reap, you sow in, uh, into this world and you will reap destruction. How many celebrities have we learned that that's true? How many people in this world have made their life about fame and riches? And what did they find? They were famous and they were rich. And what did they say? What did their life look like when we got there? Miserable. Addicted. Insecure. Self-harm. Empty. Some of the most successful people in this world are the most unhealthy on the planet. Tom Brady said it after winning three Super Bowls in 2005 in an interview with 60 Minutes. After, after winning his third, he was like, the little quote said, there's got to be more than this. What else is there for me? Is literally what he said on camera. There's got to be more than this. I've, people said this is all what it's cracked to be up or to be, and I've done it. I'm 27 years old. I'm Tom Brady. I've won three Super Bowls. There's got to be more than this. What else is there? Where are you sowing? Verse 9 gives us the encouragement that we need to persevere. It says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. Why does he have to tell us to not grow weary? Because we grow weary. Because work is hard. And because sin corrupted it. It's broken. Like things don't go the way we wish they did. Our coworkers lie and steal. It doesn't rain when we want. It rains too much sometimes. Parts break. Medicine doesn't work. Leaders take advantage. This ground is cursed. We're broken people. We, we work on a broken ground. It's easy to grow weary. But he says, don't grow weary. Why? Because at the proper time, you'll reap a harvest. I want to end by just telling you, the harvest is worth it. I need you to tell me that tomorrow. The harvest is worth it. Like what we're sowing in to, this idea of heaven, this this kingdom that God talks about to, to orient our lives around is worth it. It's worth it. Upside down leadership is the harder, less traveled route, but it's worth it. We have a God who sees us. We have a God who, 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 who rewards us. We have a God who has been clear in how we are to pursue the right harvest. Because it's not worth plowing and sweating if you don't get a harvest, right? It's just not worth it. No one, no one says, I just want to spend three years planting orange trees, but I don't care if we actually have a harvest. No one does that. You got you to gotta, you gotta hope and look forward to the harvest. The question is, which harvest are you sowing towards? Is it one in this world, or is it the one God promises? I'm going to invite the band back up, and I want to read Romans 8, which I think is a beautiful description of just the, the groaning of creation, but also what we have to look forward to. So I want to invite you to close your eyes and receive this. This is present suffering and future glory. This is recognizing that right now it's hard, that right now it's difficult, it's challenging, it's not natural. This life that God just called us all to right here in his word is upside down, but it's worth it because there's a future glory. Romans 8, 
18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Last verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Father, we, we cling on to these words. We cling on to the hope that you give, that you promise. These 80 to 90 years that we live on this side of cre- creation, in this world, they feel long. They feel like forever. It's so easy for us to even orient our work towards a harvest that we will plant for ourselves and try to reap here. Yet you tell us there's a better harvest coming. You tell us there's something worth being patient for. There's something worth suffering for, sacrificing for. And Lord, I just ask that as your word has been read, that your spirit would change the way we view work. It would change the way we exist in it. It would change the way we submit to authority that's over us, God, because we recognize we're really working for you. And it would also change the way we exist in authority, that we would, you give our leaders and those that have positional authority in workplaces a vision from heaven to how to steward it. We want that, Lord. We're grateful to get a chance to, to be here together and have brothers and sisters in this struggle, in the toil. I pray even as the prayer team stands around the room that we would continue to go to you for help, that we would cry out to you for help, reminding ourselves that you do help, you listen, you hear us, you're with us. And as we sing, may we sing like a creation that has truly put our hope in you and nothing else. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.